Good afternoon, Santa Cruz and the Monterey Bay region. It's every other Sunday again, and I'm Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now, a radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. Today, my guest is Marisha Farnsworth. She's an artist based in Oakland whose large-scale public space interventions explore future ecosystems, infrastructural utopias, and the social and ecological implications of materiality and the built environment. Her work has been exhibited at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, the Venice Biennale, and is in the collection of the Nevada Museum of Art. She was the lead artist for the 2017 Temple at Burning Man. Uh, good afternoon, Marisha. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing just fine. So uh, why don't we get into our, our, our discussion? Um, why don't you start by telling us what it is that you actually do? Um, yeah, so I'm an artist and sometimes an educator. And uh, my work spans multiple disciplines and often takes place outside of the art gallery. Many of my projects are large in scale and are sometimes considered to be public art, but I consider them to be ecological art because they rely not only on the public, but on other species to interact with and to activate them. What kind of species are we talking about? Um, plants, microbes. I've worked with mycelium. Yeah, we should talk about that. That's the, those are mushrooms, right? Or basically fungi. Yeah. Um, fungi. How how did you? Um, can you tell us something about the the history of this of this field? It's called sometimes environmental or ecological art, fusing nature and culture. And so I'm wondering, you know, where when did it begin and how did it begin? Yeah. So on a very um, basic level, environmental art is influenced by the environmental movement. Um, it also has crossover with activism, especially environmental justice and social justice movements. Um, but I think that environmental art, you know, you could argue that it has been around as long as humans have been making art. Um, but it is considered an emerging field, and I would say it started sometime in the 60s when so many things started was definitely informed and came about alongside other art movements, land art, performance art, and social practice, for example. Um, I could give a few examples of early ecological artworks that have been inspirational for me um, and that come to mind when I think about artists trying to develop an ecological art practice. So why did, yeah, uh, go ahead when, and do that. Yeah, when is Alan Sonfist's Time Landscape? Um, which he conceived of in 1965, and which you can still see in Manhattan. It's um, a public park that consists of a pre-colonial forest that's been planted. Um, so you see the trees and plants that would have been growing there before Europeans arrived in the 16th century. It's accessible only for maintenance, so you can't go inside, but you can kind of peek your head in and try to try to ignore the traffic that's happening behind you. And this piece, I think it helped open up, you know, our conceptions of, of what public art can be, but it also caused the New York City Parks and Recreation Department to really rethink what it allowed 
to be planted in terms of like permissible landscaping plants. And I find this pretty inspirational that an artwork could influence, you know, our daily lives and also change public policy. Hmm. It seems we're to be we're, in, we're go on. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's um, no. in Greenwich Village. If that's what you're gonna ask. Oh, okay. But I was gonna say, I mean, to me, this project also seems really ahead of its time. I mean, it, it's so interesting now, decades before, um, you know, the amazing environmentalist Eric Sanderson wrote the book Manhattan, which kind of documents the diverse ecologies that existed on the island um, pre-Europeans. So. You know, if you want to understand in detail what Manhattan was like, you can read Sanderson's book. But if you want to catch a glimpse of it, you can visit Time Landscape. And I think this is one thing that sets environmental art apart, is you often see a relationship like this between science and ecology and even public policy. Another well, project that... Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I go ahead, Marisha. Keep going. I was just going to say, another project that um, is kind of a touchstone for my work and the way that I think about making art is Marilyn Latterman Euclid's proposal to turn Fresh Kills Landfill into a public park. Um, so she's known for her decades-long relationship with the public sanitation department in New York and is probably thought of more as a, a feminist artist than an ecological artist. But in 1969, she wrote a manifesto for maintenance art where she described the way that our society gravely undervalues maintenance work from janitors to garbage men to mothers caring for their children. And this work that tends to be done by women and people of color and immigrants is really undervalued, but it is absolutely necessary for society. And by contrast, our society rewards development, the new change, progress, and in the art world, kind of this idea of pure individual creativity. And she associates this development with kind of a male energy. Um, and you can think about this dialectic that she sets up by contrasting her work with that of her male contemporaries. Like while Michael Heiser was using dynamite and bulldozers to carve big trenches into the earth, she was suggesting that we just reconsider a landfill as our collective land art project, um, the landfill that we all faithfully contribute to on a weekly basis and have created this kind of massive um, object in the landscape. The landfill is our collective land art creation. And I like those two pieces because I think they, they implicate us in the development of our ecologies and they also both manage to impact public policy. Well, so, so let me actually throw out a, a, a bit of a challenge, since we were talking about, about the forest in Greenwich Village. Central Park, right? Central Park was designed by William Olmsted. It's a pretty large-scale intervention, I assume, into what was there before. How does, how does something like Central Park differ from what interests you and the kinds of things that you do? Well, I think, you know, having lived in New York, everybody is grateful for Central Park and... I remember in um, undergrad learning a little bit about the history of Central Park, and, and one reason that it, he was unable to preserve that giant area was because it was some of the least um, 
desirable real estate property on the mm-hmm. island. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that public parks are um, absolutely essential and important for people to be able to have access to open spaces. Which I, I wasn't actually... I do. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, I, don't, I wasn't actually asking about the Central Park part of it, but, right, it's the, it's the idea of designing nature, um, which comes from English gardens, basically. I think you know, Central Park is a riff on, on English gardens, orderly English gardens. And um, so, I mean, that's what I was trying to get at, not at the, the, the open space or public part part of it. But anyway, that, go on with... with um, well... You know. No, I see what you're. I see what you're asking. I think that it's. Um, you know, one of the things that we could all benefit from recognizing, and that I try to point out through my work, is that there really isn't this duality between, um, you know, cities and nature. It's not like cities over here uh-huh. and nature's over there. Like ecology exists yeah. all around us, not just in Central Park, but also. Um, in the buildings, in in the apartments, in the people. In fact, we are also animals, which we kind of forget sometimes. So do we design nature? Absolutely. Like, we have been doing it forever. Um, everything around us is designed nature in a way. It's just, are we designing the kind of nature that we want to inhabit? And I think that's what's a little bit um, gone awry right now is, like, here we are, we're, we are designing the spaces that we inhabit, and we're creating a mass extinction. We're changing our environment in ways that are going to cause um, all kinds of terrible problems. So it's really, how can we design the kind of spaces, the kind of ecologies that we want to inhabit, which I think is ecologies that support flourishing biodiversity, which is really what we need to survive. So, so in a way, this kind of work tries to bring back to the attention of the public the fact that we're not distinct from nature and landscapes, uh, which is, of course, what we tend to think, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that the ambition of environmental art is that we can help uh, help people look, rethink their daily lives and rethink the kind of environments that we are generating. Well, how did you get into this? Um, so I grew up in Oakland, and um, my parents are also artists, and they have a studio there called Magnolia Editions, which is kind of an amazing creative and community um, print shop. And it didn't at all prepare me for going to art school in New York at the Cooper Union. Growing up in the Bay Area, I'd always felt a real urgency around social and environmental issues. And the New York gallery scene just really, you know, it, it just wasn't a good fit for my priorities and values. So mm-hmm. after, um, after school, I kind of fled and moved to a cabin in the woods by myself. I'd been reading about the Back to the Land movement and I started learning sustainable technologies from the old hippies who still lived there. Um, I was actually living on a kind of defunct commune, 
and uh, the infrastructure was still in place. So I got to learn about how to grow my own food and how to live off the grid, how to build um, houses out of straw bale and earth and how to recycle water and human waste um, to feed microbes and plants. And it wasn't easy. I would say I was a total city slicker having grown up in cities my whole life. And the first week I was just freezing cold and filled my room with smoke, my one room cabin with smoke until somebody finally told me that, you know, I I had to light a fire by opening the flue. Um, (laughs) So I was doing that and I was also working in construction, which was, uh, shall we say, it was a challenge as a very uh, kind of a petite woman. um, It was a bit of a challenge to kind of win the respect of these tough old mountain men and I wasn't particularly good at it um, at the beginning either. I I remember I fell off a scaffolding and I um, I crashed a, a dump truck, <laughs> but it paid <laughs> off and now I can um, I can drive the heavy equipment for my own projects. Uh-huh. So eventually I moved back to the city and got my master's in architecture and that's when I started implementing some of my ideas um, in an urban environment. So I planned and planted urban forests to absorb air pollution. I built public urinals that use human waste to feed plants. And I built ecological housing for students experiencing homelessness. I'd I'd like to come back and talk about, about some of your projects. We need to take a brief break, okay? Okay. You're listening to... You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and ksquid.org streaming on the internet. KSQD is committed to increasing the diversity of voices within our organization and on our airwaves. We will expand our broadcast platform for meaningful conversations that affirm the right to a safe community for everyone, regardless of race, gender, or economic standing. Bringing together diverse perspectives is a core value of KSQD. We are many voices, one station. Let us all use this opportunity to learn from each other, build our society to benefit all, and heal our nation. This is Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now on KSquid. My guest today is Marisha Farnsworth, an Oakland-based artist who works on projects in the environment uh, and landscapes and and tries to shape the urban setting in ways that make people more conscious of the connections between culture and nature. Um, Marisha, before we go and talk about your projects, I was wondering if you might say something about the cultural and political role of the kind of art that you do. Yeah, well, I mean, I talked a little bit about um, how I think some many ecological art projects have been able to change public policy, even in a small way. Um, but in general, I would say that art's good at helping us look at things from a different perspective, and it's good at starting conversations but not necessarily finishing them. And um, I think some of the ideas that are put forth through these art projects get picked up and circulated in society and can make it into politics and other disciplines. Proponents of the Green New Deal argue that 
um, like childcare and ecological maintenance are low-carbon jobs that should be considered green jobs and should be better compensated. And I, I hear echoes of Euclid's ideas there. But I think some artists do push the boundaries and try to do, try to do more than just um, put ideas out into the public. The Harrisons come to mind, who are an early ecological art duo. Could, can you tell us just well a little known. bit about who they are? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, Helen has uh, passed away, but Newton Harrison is still working and has um, the, his Center for the Force Majeure, which is affiliated with UC Santa Cruz. And they became well-known in the 70s for doing some fun projects like grazing a pig in a museum and having a fish farm in a museum and then cooking uh, a fish dinner and serving it to people. And Newton's um, new project is, or one of his new proposals, is the creation of a brand new city in Sweden of 20,000 people that is knit into the ecosystem with plans for agroforestry and agriculture and animal husbandry. And he calls this a counter-extinction activity. And this is a super ambitious project that I think is certainly beyond the scope of, of most art projects. I met Newton Harrison at uh, the UC Berkeley field station at Sage Hen, which is in the Sierra Nevadas. And there, together with a group of artists and scientists, we founded Future Forests, which is an organization dedicated to supporting biodiversity in the Sierra Nevadas. I think um, there are real limitations to what artists can do in a silo or what I could do alone. But through collaboration, especially multidisciplinary collaboration, I, I hope that artists might find uh, a critical role to play. Do you do, you do any work with, with K through 12 students? I mean, that's, that's really where you have to start, it seems to me, is um, when they're young. Yeah, you know, I... I haven't for a while. I did some projects with high school students. I've done a few over the years, which has been super rewarding work. And um, I've taught in, you know, community college and universities for a while. Now I have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I definitely think more and more about, about um, working with younger people. I actually just, in my crazy shelter-in-place time, have written a kid's book, so I'm definitely thinking about how I can speak to a younger audience. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that, you know, school gardens are all the rage right now. Um, I, I think probably every elementary school has, well, every elementary school in white neighborhoods anyway has its, its garden. And, you know, of course, the focus there is growing food. The focus isn't on some sort of aesthetic understanding, I guess, and it seems like that would be a really good place to, to, to work with kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going through a period where I'm questioning what is the most important thing I can be doing right now, and working with kids is, does seem like the most important thing I could be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, well, let's talk about some of, some of your projects, okay? Um, I don't know where you want to, which one you want, would like to start with. What was the first one that you did? The first project that I did? Hmm, good question. I mean, I've always been kind of doing 
projects, so it's hard to say what was really the beginning. All right, um, pick one. <laughs> hmm. um, well, well, tell us about the urinals. How about that? Let's just start with that. Okay, that's, that's a good fairly, one to start with. That's a, that's Everyone loves interesting to hear about idea. the urinals. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> so Everyone pees. <laughs> everybody pees, and you know when when we think about um, the kind of carelessness of our society in in so many ways, I, I think the way that we treat human waste is is definitely at the top of the list. Um, and that goes back to kind of forgetting that we're animals. We're like consuming food, and farming has a huge ecological impact. And then we kind of just flush this waste down the toilet, and I know more about the sewer here in the East Bay than in most places, but it, they're relatively similar across the country unless you're on a septic system. But in urban spaces, they tend to be pretty similar um, where, you know, solids are separated from liquids and processed to a certain degree. Um, we're lucky here in the, in the Bay Area that our solids are reused, but on non-crop, non-food crops. So nothing that would go back to human consumption. The nutrient-rich water is um, flushed into the bay, which can cause all kinds of environmental problems. And beyond that is just a waste of nutrients. So the projects really started with um, when I was working with one of my former partners, former romantic partner Brent, Button Brent Bucknam, and we were doing projects in San Francisco. And there's just such kind of a a human waste crisis going on in San Francisco, honestly. There's just, like, urine and feces all over the streets, causing all kinds of even mechanical problems in the BART. So we started to build these rapidly deployable urinals that would capture um, the urine, and there was a hand-washing station, and the urine and the water, the gray water, would combine and water a series of planters. And this way we were able to have the whole thing off the grid, so we didn't need to create a sewer connection, which is really costly, and we're able to keep the cost of these of these units way down. Um, and they were hugely popular. I mean, obviously, everybody, you know, everybody's all in favor of more public restrooms. And we worked for years on um, kind of a similar idea for a composting toilet, which uh, rather than, you know, sending um, poop down to downstream to the sewer would actually just compost it in a dry way, and then it can be reused on grasslands. Mm -hmm. um, and, man, we were hung up with <laughs> public health for, like, <laughs> for so long that our grant money ran out, so that, that project never happened. But, um, yeah, I... actually, recently we did kind of the final project in that series at um, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts where... There was actually a urinal in the museum. Actually, it was in the courtyard of the museum. They didn't let us put it inside, which was probably okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, because it was in the courtyard, it was publicly accessible, so you didn't have to pay the museum entrance um, fee to go use it. And then uh, the urine was turned into struvite, which is a fertilizer ready to be put on plants. Um, and oh, actually critical yeah. for plant life. And we had a little mm -hmm. garden there with an orange tree, and um, we we use the fertilizer um, for the plants, and then it, we also created distilled water, which we wanted to feed 
to the museum visitors, but um, the museum wouldn't let us do it. So we serve tap water. Yeah, everybody is really worried about those kinds of things, especially liability issues, I suppose. Um, but uh, so you, you did this in San Francisco, and, and how long did those things stand or, or stay there? Um, not very long. The longest we, were, we ever got a permit for was a two-week period, um, and that was like a fantastic two weeks. We had um, a, a, some local um, residents monitor the thing and check up on it even during the night and some crazy crazy things went on there but um yeah that was the longest period we ever had so it always it always sort of ran into permitting problems hmm. um well how about you know one of the, the the projects that i that i read about and that i really like is your block by block project on market street in san francisco um c can you describe that yeah, so that was a project um, that I did with the Luggage Store Gallery, which is a, an amazing kind of cultural icon in San Francisco. And it was um, funded by the Kenneth Reinan Foundation's Imagining Central Market Grant. And it was also um, San Francisco's third living innovation zone, which was a kind of a project of the mayor's office of civic innovation and the idea behind all of the all of these incentive you know project programs was like how can we kind of reimagine market street to be a more community friendly space and what happened to market street was that um in the 1990s the planning department in a truly misguided effort to try to reduce the visibility of homelessness and drug dealing removed all the public benches along the street. So as anybody who's been to San Francisco knows, this did nothing to lower the visibility of homelessness or drug dealing. It just meant that those people were now sitting or lying on the street. Um, meanwhile, the Market Street sidewalks, which are huge, hugely broad, they're 30 feet wide in some places, just turned into this kind of vast expanse of, of people rushing back and forth. Um, with no kind of community feeling or in no place to sit down. So in the project before Block by Block, we had actually, with, also with the Luggage Store Gallery, we introduced the first public seating, temporary public seating on Market Street since the 90s. And um, when that project expired, we wanted to do it again in, in a more permanent way, and this was a year-long project. But we knew it was going to be a challenge. Um, because of this history. And so I designed a, a piece that was really, it, it was intended to be playful and also open for interpretation. So I milled, um, it was from one redwood tree that somebody cut down in their yard in Oakland, and I milled it into these giant wooden blocks, some as long as eight feet, and stacked them up in some places, like an amphitheater, there was like a giant kind of battering ram of a swing there was a seesaw, um, and so it was definitely a place for like lounging and sitting, but also for, you know, having a dance performance, and and those were curated there, and having crafting events. There was a, a crochet jam, and people immediately kind of embraced this this thing on the street, and um, on a daily basis, you'd see tourists taking photos, you'd see people eating lunch, 
Um, you'd see people um, selling weed. <laughs> you'd see people sleeping on it. You'd see a parent doing homework with their kid. And um, it was very much loved by local residents. But also, it began to create a certain tension. And here, I think that is because this project was so open. It was so inclusive for everybody, unlike um, some of the other kind of pseudo-public spaces that you see in San Francisco. And here, I feel like as cool as parklets were when they were first presented, if over time, even though they have this little sign on them that says, like, anyone can sit here, they become these kind of privatized pockets along our public sidewalks because they're enclosed um, by walls to protect them from the cars and because they're facing usually a cafe and people are drinking coffee out of coffee cups from the cafe. And there is one of these um, uh, more private seating areas pretty close to this sculpture. And it became really clear that uh, there is a division along class lines, along race lines. You'd see all the people of color hanging out on block by block and mostly, you know, white people eating um, at the food court. And I think that you know, I remember one day one of the directors of the gallery, Lori Laser, sent me a picture of somebody sleeping on the swing at Block by Block. And my response was like, yeah, like, okay, sleep on art. Like, honestly, it's a sad commentary on our society, but if that's what public art needs to be providing right now is a place to sleep, then that's absolutely what it should be doing. And I think the planning department was pretty sympathetic with my views on what was happening, but um, Public Works was pretty antagonistic, and it rubbed some of the business owners the wrong way. So I'm not saying <laughs> that this piece solved anything. In fact, I think inequalities are probably worse than ever in San Francisco right now. But um, the redesign of Market Street will include some kind of public seating. So I hope that there will be um, more forums for different sectors of the community to come together and engage in public space. We need to take a brief break, okay? You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and ksqt.org, streaming on the Internet. Over to you, Emily. QD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM, and follow the path of the squid. Eclectic music, news that matters, and stories that inspire and inform. The squid knows the way. KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM, many voices, one station. You're listening to Sustainability Now on KSquid. Uh, this is Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Marisha Farnsworth, an ecological-slash-environmental-slash-landscape artist based in Oakland. We were just talking about a project that she uh, she did called Block by Block on Market Street in San Francisco, which rubbed uh, public works and some of the businesses the wrong way. It it raises some interesting questions about this kind of, of art, Marisha, in the sense that... Um, 
it takes money to do it. Uh, it takes a certain, I don't know, set of social skills to accomplish it. And, and it's, you know, in a way, you know, when you point out it, it appeals to, to tourists and, and um, certain class of, of folks. And I'm not just thinking here about Market Street. I'm thinking about more broadly. How, how then does this relate to, you know, the uh, c communities of color and, and the poor? I mean, what do they get from it? Well, I mean, it, that's a pretty broad question, and I guess it really depends on the project. In the case of Block by Block, I think that project was really for everybody, and frankly, people just got a place to sit down. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I, the, the, there's a lot of people in Central Market who, um, who live in SROs, and one of the women um, who lived in one of the SROs, like the, the day that they deinstalled the peach, she was just like crying and she wouldn't get off of it. And mm -hmm. um, she just loved actually the big pieces of wood. It was just like a little piece of, of something kind of beautiful and natural for her. And she didn't want them to take it away. But so, yeah. When did, when did it get taken away? And why? Um, it, oh, well, it was a temporary piece, so it was, it, it was a year. It was meant to be out for a year. And the city, the city wasn't ready to, to keep it there, basically? Um, no. Public Works was like, this has got to go. <laughs> and what was so interesting <laughs> about it was, like, nothing was really happening there that wasn't happening in that spot before we put it there. You know, like, there were homeless people and drug dealers on the very block all the time. But for some reason, when you stick a public art piece there and those activities happen on public art, then it suddenly becomes a problem. It's as if the art made an activity visible, which is so bizarre um, that we can't see what's going on, you know, all around us. We just look the other way. But yeah, that's, I, I guess, one reason why I say art is good at starting conversations, at least. Yeah. Well, okay, let's go to uh, another one, one that's, you know, probably of some interest to our listeners, the, the temple at Burning Man. Um, I mean, I've heard you talk about this before, so, but I wonder if you could just tell us, you know, how, how you decided to do it, you know, what was the inspiration and, and how it proceeded? Yeah, um, I could talk about that for a while, so just stop me if I get too okay, long. Okay, I'll stop you when we need to take a break, okay? So go on. <laughs> so, yeah, Burning Man's not happening this year, um, but it used to be that, you know, that was an event of, of 70,000 people gathering in the Nevada desert and building, amongst other things, giant sculptures made out of, many made out of brand new materials bought at hardware stores and then burned in a kind of um, neo-pagan ritual. And this always felt just like a painful waste to me. And I saw an opportunity to try and knit this alienated ritual back into nature by creating a meaningful exchange with our forests, by using as the material to build one of these structures dead trees that are standing in the Sierra Nevadas. So Burning Man fire is really celebrated, but in California, every year, fires are burning out of control. Hundreds of thousands of acres are burning 
each year releasing more greenhouse gas emissions than all of our energy efficiency measures are saving. The fires are so large and so hot that it's difficult for the forest to regenerate. So while I think these forest fires have made climate change tangible for many of us in California, there's another, there's another problem, which is the pine bark beetle epidemic, which has made climate change material with 130 million dead trees in California alone. And these two issues are related because they are both the result of a weakened forest ecosystem, which has been debilitated by both global warming and over a century without the maintenance that Native Americans once provided. So I harvested these dead trees for the temple in the hopes of starting a conversation about uh, the real role that fire can play in our landscape, the role it has played and the role it could play. And the, the project really took me down a rabbit hole of research. So before I talk about just actually building the thing, I'll explain a little more about our forests. So Native Americans maintained our forests with sophisticated horticultural techniques, the most significant of which was managed fire. So this is small fires that are lit on a regular basis and kind of clear out the brush in the understory. And these small fires are um, critical for many California native plants to reproduce. Uh, they also control for insects and disease and increase the quantity and quality of the materials that Native Americans used. So early accounts of the Sierra Nevadas describe towering trees spaced 40 to 60 feet apart and you can read about this in M. Cat Anderson's amazing book called Tending the Wild. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the book is from a Sierra Miwok elder named James Rust, who said, white man has sure ruined this country. It's turned back to wilderness. So ironically, in contrast to these prior conditions, our forests can now be considered more of a wilderness than ever before. And I think for me, this just subverts the attitude that I had towards our forests and open spaces growing up. I've really had to rethink the idea of preservation um, that we've inherited from ecologists like John Muir, because our forests were never really natural in the sense of unadulterated by man. The forests were actually the result of a dialogue between humans and trees who existed in a symbiotic relationship, which involved a material exchange. So the problem with the types of fires that we're seeing today is that they're not really playing the role that they should be. They're too big. They're too hot. Um, and in any given location, they are too infrequent. So the problem is that in our forests now, saplings are kind of densely crowding around larger trees, which means that they're competing for nutrients and water. And it also means that they can spread any fire that starts up to the canopy, killing larger trees that would have otherwise survived an understory brush fire. There's just too many small trees in our forests right now. So that causes the scale of the fires to be huge, but there was a time when these huge fires didn't happen. And we can see this through tree ring analysis, which is by examining the stumps 
of old-growth trees that were cut down 100 years ago. We can see as far back as the 17th century when large fires were rare and small fires occurred as frequently as every two years. And beginning in the mid-1800s, which is the period of Western expansion in California, this trend starts to reverse. And in fact, the Forest Service eventually started a policy of fire suppression in the 1900s. So this problem has been going on for a while. And when you visit some parts of the Sierra Nevadas today, you'll see that more than half the trees are dead. And I saw this it, for myself for the first time in 2015, and it's truly shocking and alarming. It's like the, the hillsides look like a, a kind of army fatigue of red and brown and green. And it was the first time when I really felt like, oh my gosh, climate change is actually already happening and already having a huge impact on our ecologies. So the dead trees um, are actually from, the death of the trees is blamed on the pine bark beetle, which is actually a native insect. And that beetle once performed a role in our forests as well. It would cull old or weakened trees from the forest. But now, because the forests are overcrowded and we've had these prolonged droughts, they're exposed to air pollution and increasing temperatures, the trees are too weak to kind of ward off this native insect. And, then, and, the, and also the insect has a longer um, period to live because the temperature has increased. So... Um, I harvested a hundred of these um, dead trees killed by beetles, and I milled them into this kind of beetle-killed blue-stained pine lumber, which is hardly ever used, believe it or not, despite having millions and millions of, of these dead trees. Um, they were all milled at a small mill in Richmond, California, which is called the Green Waste Recycle Yard, and they... Uh, collect trees that have been cut down in people's backyards and in parks, and, and I get a lot of my materials from them. Usually what they do with these logs is they con convert them into mulch for gardens or biomass fuel, so a lot of these huge trees aren't even kind of getting reused in construction. Um, the dead trees that are killed by the beetles get this kind of gray marbling from a fungus that the beetle carries in its mouth, which gave the wood this kind of beautiful antique quality and also makes it just look really kind of special. Um, the structure looked like it was built in another time period because of the coloration. And also because the wood was milled to an odd size, um, it, it just looked really unique and it makes you realize that we're just so used to seeing um, industrialized products, like woods always milled to the same size, is always the same color. It just, um, we're not used to seeing these kind of custom shapes and, and colorations. So the idea of using this wood was to introduce a new kind of social and material and ecological narrative to Burning Man, um, to expand the program from its normal program, which I should explain a little bit about. So the temple um, is a project that was 
started by the artist David Best, who's one of my mentors, decades ago. And the intention of that place is to create a space for mourning human death. So people bring photographs and mementos and write messages on the temple, and then it's burned at the end of the event, and all the things are burned along with it. And so I wanted to kind of expand this narrative from the death of people to the death of species as forests and their dependent ecologies migrate north or cease to exist. Um, the actual building of the temple in the desert is kind of an amazing experience. We had only two weeks um, to build an 160-foot-wide structure, and we could only do it with an absolutely incredible team. We had a brilliant structural engineer, Mark Sinclair, and a super-organized project manager, Steve Brummond, a super-talented lead build, Blaget, and an arborist, Lee Klinger, who advised and helped build the structure and is actually based near you in Big Sur. He loves trees so much that he goes by the name Tree. And so many other just kind and eccentric people who make this project possible. It's built with 100% volunteer labor. So there's hundreds of people out there making this happen, many of whom have zero building experience. And the conditions are just absolutely terrible, and it's crazy to think anybody would actually want to do this. It's <laughs> over 100 degrees all the time. There's dust storms that are so bad that it's a complete whiteout and you can't see where you're walking. Dangerously high winds, um, rainstorms, it's, it's just horrible building conditions, but somehow it gets put up in two weeks. And then perhaps even worse than the building of it is um, the cleaning up. So after it's burnt, all the volunteers have to then go sift through the dirt and pick up each little splinter of wood and construction debris and memento debris that they find for days and days on end. So in the burning sand, kind of sifting through these coals, picking out little pieces of stuff, it's truly terrible work, and it makes me actually feel a little bit hopeful about the world because I realize that humans can do amazing things given the right motivation. So imagine if we could harness that kind of energy for ecological maintenance. So, yeah. um, we we need to take a, a quick break, okay, and then and then we can continue. Okay. Uh, you're listening to KSQD ninety point seven FM on your radio dial and ksquid.org streaming on the internet. Over to you, Emily. Thanks, Ronnie. On the next Be Bold America, host Jill Cody welcomes Don Siegelman and Pettis Perry to discuss a national reckoning on racism. Siegelman, who is white, is the former governor of Alabama with years of experience confronting racism in the South. He has a unique and deep perspective on how some claim the Confederate flag is a symbol of freedom of speech. Pettis Perry, an African-American, is Walden University leadership and management professor. That's a national reckoning on racism on Be Bold America, Sunday at 5 p.m. on KSquid, 90.7 FM, your ink spot on the dial, or listen online at ksqd.org. Back to you, Ronnie. 
This is Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now on K-Squid. My guest today is Marisha Farnsworth, uh, environmental landscape ecological artist based in Oakland. We were just talking about uh, the 2017 temple at Burning Man and had gotten to the point uh, about, uh, you were talking about the sort of cleaning up after the, uh, the festival and, and how it was giving you hope. Can you, can you imagine any way that this sort of sensibility would become more widespread? What would it require? I don't know, but I'd love to figure that out. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like given the right conditions, like actually um, the protests recently have also given me a lot of hope. I feel like people can make change happen. Um, maybe we just needed the time to do it in the right conditions. So but that... I, oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say I, I, I have a lot of hope that people will do things. Maybe because I have less hope that industry will do things. Um, you know, there's millions and millions of these dead trees that are just rotting in the forest while we cut live trees because. You know, our capitalist systems of extraction can't figure out how to do anything out of the ordinary. You know, the smallest inconvenience means something's not profitable, like uh, a discoloration or like a relative brittleness. Like our our systems are so just like freakishly streamlined that we can't figure out how to do anything out of the ordinary or like use the resources as they become available, which is, I think, kind of what we need to be able to do with a rapidly changing climate. It's like we need to be able to be flexible and to kind of observe what's happening and adjust. So I'm kind of hoping that people figure out a way to do that. And I'm interested in in how these recent fires and, and how these crises can hopefully help us take stock of, of our life and reconsider um, the way that we live in cities and what our relationship to our forests are. Like now, each year, we have huge impacts from forest fires, canceled school days, and increased hospitalizations. Um, I think that that we've been ignoring the state of our forests for, for so long that now it's coming to the point where it's like we need to be able to deal with them, and I just don't have the faith that... Um, that industry is going to figure it out. I think we really need to consider how do we how do we live um, with our ecologies? What what is the new kind of material exchange going to be? How can we um, become more familiar with it with the other species that exist all around us, so that we can create or we can make sure that our lifestyles are creating the kind of ecologies that we want to be part of? It's a it's a big order. Um, so what what sorts of projects are you working on right now, uh, given given uh, the lockdown and everything? What, what's, what's on your – what are your plans? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like so many people, my lifestyle has been hugely impacted by um, the pandemic and shelter in place as, you know, somebody who does projects that are often – that people interact with. I've had most of my projects canceled for the year. And I've also become the full-time caretaker for my one-and-a-half-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a huge lifestyle change. 
Um, I'm lucky, I feel lucky to have one project that was, um, the funding was already in place before the pandemic and I'm able to work on it safely um, through shelter in place. And um, the public Can you tell us about date. it? <laughs> yeah. Tell, it's tell us something about that it. I'm, um, again, milling out of a redwood tree that was cut down in an urban yard huh. and just kind of like slowly working on it myself by myself and um uh the launch date is a little unclear just because we don't know like when people are going to be able to gather or what that's going to look like um but i yeah i will be you know posting progress on that piece on the dreaded instagram so you'll at least be able to see it there if not in real life (laughs) what is it uh what is it going to look like what is it supposed to do it's going to be a kind of the idea of it was um, it's kind of this uh, circle that dips into the ground and it's called full circle and it's meant to be an accessible piece. So, it, you know, mm-hmm. back in the days when people could gather, um, people could get, sit around it and somebody with, uh, in a wheelchair could also join in the circle. But uh-huh. once again... <laughs> where, at least, where, what it, is at the, least it's, it's um at least it's big enough that you could still social distance on it. <laughs> where where was it planned? Where do you plan to put it? Oh, it's for the city of Mountain View. Ah, okay. Um well, so we'll we'll uh, sort of keep that in mind and and pay attention to uh what's going on. Um so we're just about out of time, but if, if for listeners who want, might want to learn more about the field in which you work, uh, can you recommend any resources or any websites that they could look at? Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a wealth of information out there if you want to sift through the interwebs. But if you are looking for something more curated, the Center for Art and Environment at the Nevada Museum of Art has been making uh, an effort for a while to support and archive this kind of work. And um, they also used to have a conference, but who knows what's going to happen with that now, moving forward. Okay. Well, listen, excuse me, I want to thank you for being my guest on Sustainability Now. For those of you who are interested in um, learning more about Marisha's work and about the, the field of landscape art, on the posts that I have put up, linked to the uh, which will be linked to the recording of this uh, broadcast, I've, I've put some hyperlinks uh, that lead to various other kinds of, of informational resources. Um, it's a really interesting field, and um, I encourage everybody to to look into it and, and think about, you know, Marisha's hope that somehow. This can can mobilize people politically and socially. So once again, thank you for being my guest, Marisha. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Uh, so my guest on August 9th will be Dr. Rupa Basu from the California Office on Environmental Health Hazards. She's a co-author of a recently published review article in JAMA Open Network about the effects of air pollution and climate change on birth outcomes. I thought we might... Uh, range a little bit farther 
uh, abroad than is usually the case. So we'll also be talking about the health impacts of climate change. So that's on Sunday, August 9th, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSquid 90.7 FM and ksquid.org on the Internet. Uh, on August 23rd, as I have said before, Kim Stanley Robinson, a well-known science fiction author and a California futurist, is going to speak with me on sustainability after Anus Horribles 2020. And on September 6th, Mayra Hernandez from the Community Water Center in Sacramento and Watsonville is going to uh, talk about water justice and uh, the provision of water to uh, families in Watsonville in particular. So just as a reminder for those of you who get up with the sun, although the sun is coming up later and later, I've noticed, the shows from the 5 to 6 p.m. Sunday slot are rebroadcast the following Tuesday mornings from 6 to 7 a.m. And if you'd like to listen to previous Sustainability Now broadcasts, you can find them at ksquid.org backslash Sustainability Now and SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. So until every other Sunday, Sustainability Now.